Hi everyone, it's Cici here. I hope you're enjoying your day so far. You're listening to my podcast, where I take you on a journey each episode into the world of someone who's living the life of their dreams. My job is to unravel the mindset, the habits, and life experiences that got them there, so you can achieve it too. My guests are some of the happiest and most fulfilled people in the world, and it's my goal through this podcast to turn their wisdom into useful takeaways to help you achieve the same fulfillment in your life. So be sure to subscribe to the CC One Show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and check out our past episodes featuring top artists, thinkers, trailblazers, and athletes. All right, let's get to today's show. Very few people can say that they. Wanted to play with the world, a whole world, and and to invent it, and to to make it real, and and to build it,、um, and to tell stories in it.、Um, and I I got to do that. I got to actually do all of that, and and tell the story I wanted to tell.、Uh, so that's incredibly fortunate.、Um, you know, I I really feel so lucky that I got a、yeah. chance to do it.、Um, it makes me feel like, you know, I didn't come into this universe and leave empty-handed. I I left something behind that. Um, I thought is the、mm. best I could do,、um, and and that's pretty darn awesome. That was American author Ken Liu, best known for his short story collections on completing his new epic fantasy series, The Dandelion Dynasty. Ken is my guest for today's show, and he's the only author to take home all three of science fiction's major awards, the Hugo, the Nebula, and the World Fantasy Award, for his short story, The Paper Menagerie. His success is quite unexpected because he never set out to become an author. Now it doesn't matter if you're not a sci-fi or a fantasy fan. Ken's stories are very much based on real life and characters that anyone can enjoy. His new book, Speaking Bones, the final installment in the Dandelion Dynasty series, which is his most ambitious work of fiction yet, is out now. Now during my research, I found Ken's life to be just as fascinating as his prose. He's had a long career in programming and law before transitioning to full-time writing only in recent years. I think, however, he was always meant to be a writer. But just didn't see it as a viable career path when he was young. It took him a while to get to a point where he got to do what he truly was meant to do, and the Dandelion Dynasty epic is a manifestation of his long journey, all of his life experiences, skills, wisdom, and knowledge he's gained along the way, injected into this massive epic that is quintessentially him, that only he can write. Back in May, we chatted about how it feels to have completed possibly his most important work as a writer, his circuitous path to becoming an author, how he taught himself to write, and more. Here's Ken. Please enjoy. Thank you, Zissy, for having me. It's a real pleasure. <laughs> I read your short story collection,、uh, The Paper Menagerie, and other stories. And I was actually pretty blown away by how talented you are as a storyteller. Oh, thank and, you. Yeah, and as a thinker too. Your short story, "The Paper Menagerie,"、um, is the first work of fiction to win all of the Nebula, Hugo, and World Fantasy Awards. Can you tell our listeners first what the story is about? Right. So to give listeners a little bit of background, because what I have to say will not make sense until I give this little intro.、Um, I. Sort of stumbled into、um, genre fiction by accident. It's it's、mm-hmm. not something that I set out to do.、Um, I've always been interested in telling stories that I describe as making some aspect of reality that we think about in a metaphorical sense literally true. So I call them literalization of metaphor stories. So to give you an example of what I'm talking about,、um, I may、uh, we metaphorically speak about the fact that when we 
feel loved, when, when we feel, you know, people love us. The world seems to become more alive, more colorful, more beautiful in some sense. Everything, you know, feels more uh, more bright. Uh, uh, just there's a sense of, of, of joy that suffuses everything. And, and you feel like even the universe itself seems kinder. So we obviously mean that in a metaphorical sense. But I would turn that in fiction into a literally true concept. So the idea is love animates things. Love makes things come alive. So mm -hmm. what if I could tell a story in which a mother's love could actually make otherwise inanimate objects around you come alive? What sort Ooh. of magical childhood would you have? Um, that's the kind of story I write. I literalize metaphors, either through technology, in which case people call it sci-fi, or I do it through magic, people call it fantasy, or sometimes I do it without explaining anything. I just posit the world as that. Uh, and then people say, oh, maybe it's magic realism. I, I don't know what this is that Ken is doing. It's, it's something. <laughs> um, so I don't think a lot about genres. I, I think in terms of literalizing metaphors. So with all of that out of the way, that's what The Paper Menagerie really is about. It's a story about um, a, a boy whose mother has the magical power of infusing life into uh, these origami paper animals that she folds for him. Um, and they are, they become his uh, toys and companions in childhood. Um, now, uh, this is an American family, um, and everybody is American, but uh, there's one aspect of it that makes it, uh, that gives the story its tension, which is the mother, uh, who is an American mother, um, is a Chinese immigrant as well. And the father, um, who is also American, is a white uh, male. Uh, and so the child, who is also American, uh, is biracial. Now, I went over that in this very elaborate way uh, for one reason, which is I often hear the story described as uh, being about a, an American father and a Chinese mother, um, which I reject categorically. That, that is the very wrong way to think about it. Um, the mother has as much claim to Americanness as the father, and this is one of my key points. So for people to talk about it as a Chinese mother and an American father is, one, to identify whiteness with Americanness, which I reject, and two, to identify being native-born with Americanness, which I also reject. Um, so that's why it's very important to me to give the description of the story accurately. It's an, about an American family, in which all three members are American. Um, and the tension comes from the fact that because the mother is an immigrant um, and of Chinese descent, uh, the child, Jack, ends up facing a huge amount of prejudice. And he starts to then see all the beautiful things around him, this magical animated menagerie of origami animals from being a source of joy and magic it turns into a source of shame and embarrassment because his white friends come to him and tell him that he shouldn't be um excited by these wonderful paper magic animals because they are just made of trash your mother is a mail order bride you know uh she was ordered from a catalog um they try to make him feel ashamed um they impose a systemic racist attitude on jack and, and jack internalizes those attitudes and then ends up um having a broken relationship with his own mother as a result of internalized racism so in another 
since the story is a story about racism, about the effects of mm -hmm. systemic racism and how personal it can actually be. Um, and so without spoiling the story, uh, I will say that uh, there does come a resolution. He does have to confront his own racism and he does have to confront his own internalized hatred uh, and self-hatred. And he does have to actually face the consequences of all of that. Um, mm -hmm. And I wrote the story to engage with all of these aspects of Americanness and the importance of um, empathy, of being a little kinder and of being a little more skeptical about conventional attitudes about who is an American, who gets to be an American, and what does it even mean when we say somebody doesn't belong. Yeah, there's so much packed in there. I can see why it was so well received. I'm just curious, when it comes to your short stories, how are you able to achieve being both thought-provoking and also um, emotionally resonant with audience at the same time? So I was trained as a lawyer, right? So uh, for many years, I honed my skill at taking a reader up a very narrow path because in um, legal rhetoric and in persuasive writing, your goal is to narrow the potential possibilities. You're trying to narrow the reader's choices so that they have no choice but to agree, to agree with you. Now, in practice, of course, you know, that doesn't work. But the ideal goal is to write a brief in such a way that the reader reads it and follows exactly the path you lay out and ends up exactly where you want them to be. Fiction, on the other hand, as a mode of rhetoric, is the exact opposite. I think fiction is most effective when it acts as um, uh, an empty house in which the reader can live out their own life. So the way I think about it is this. Um, I have in my head a story that I wish to tell. And I have to translate that story into language, into text, and leave marks on the page. Now, the text I leave on the page is not the same thing as the story that was in my head. This is very important. I think we've all had this experience where you have a story in your head and you try to tell the story and other people read it and they get a different story in their head. That's completely normal. The text will never be able to capture the thing that's in your head. Um, to make an analogy, right, you see a dragon in your head and it's the most wonderful thing. And when you reduce it to words, all you're putting down on the page are footprints and maybe a few scales and maybe some, some bones. So trying to reconstruct the dragon or the dinosaur based on a few footprints and some bones, of course you're not going to get the thing that was really there, but that's okay. Um, so I leave, you know, some footprints on the page or to, you know, go back to my earlier analogy, I leave an empty house. I had imagined an entire life for my characters, but all I can really leave behind on the page is an empty house, which is shaped by the lives of the characters I put in there. Now, when the reader comes in, the reader approaches an empty house and the reader has to move in with her own baggage, her own emotional baggage, her own um, set of references, her own pictures, her own memories, her own set of personal mythology that allows her to make sense of the world. We all grow up with our own personal mythology. This is how we understand human nature. This is how we understand what love is, what being hurt means, how, how, how does it feel to, to be joyful? How does it feel to be hurt? So the reader moves in and starts to, you know, make the house her own. She unpacks her 
stuff, and and she starts to move around, trying to imagine her own life in that space. So, a good story has to open up possibilities, has to provide enough room for the reader to actually live that life. So, fiction is, you know, to me, this very interesting medium where. The artist and the audience really must engage in a collaborative effort.、Um, the reader does just as much imaginative work as the author in making that story come alive, in bringing that universe to to reality.、Um, and the only reason that the reader feels at the end of a good book that she has lived another life is because she really did. She actually brought that world into being with her own imagination. Um, and and she actually lived a whole emotional life in it,、um, so that that's the only way fiction can work. You know, the the author has to leave enough、mm. openness and enough space in there for the for the reader to actually live that life. So you know, in other words, right? Fiction, by definition, cannot be very didactic. It cannot. Lead the、uh, the reader down a very narrow path. The more the reader feels constrained and let down a particular path, the less able she is to in, in exercise her own imagination to make the story come alive.、Um, and so, for me, you know, to go back to your original question, this is a very long, elaborate answer. But you know, here is the answer. The answer is I have to resist the tendency.、Um, Taught into me as as a lawyer to try to persuade. Fiction does not persuade. Fiction is all about leaving a house that has the shape of an imagined life in it, and the reader then has to imagine a new life with herself in it. And sometimes the two lives resonate in such a way that she feels like this is the most beautiful emotional experience ever,、um, and and she feels like she's learned something. She feels like she's had a whole other. View of what being human means—that's the ideal, right? When you're when you can imagine your own life in here, and it fits into the shape of the life that the author imagined, and you feel that resonance, and you feel like you've learned a whole new way of life. I mean, haven't you had that experience where you go to someone else's house, and you see everything they have around, and and you realize you're gaining a sense of what it's like to be someone else. You're gaining a sense of living an entire other life. That's what good fiction needs to do. Good fiction needs to give you that ability to imagine, to live that entire other life,、um, and to do that, it has to paradoxically leave open a lot of negative space for you to do the work of imagining yourself into it. Is it possible for you to put it in like more concrete terms with an example of what you just said? Definitely. So, in the case of the paper menagerie, for example, right?、Um, it's a story that I. I explained to you, you know, what I was trying to do, what I was trying to explain.、Um, readers have very different responses to it.、Um, lots of readers read the story as a story about cultural conflict.、Um, that's because that's the way they imagine their own lives, and they can't see any other vision to 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 interpret what happened except through that. Some other readers.、Um, These are not readers I particularly want, actually, mind you. <laughs> Some other readers read the story and they say, "Well, this is clear an example why we shouldn't have immigration, right? Right? Look how terrible,、um, you know, this child's life has been ruined because of you know having a mother who doesn't belong. This is this is a great example of why we shouldn't have immigration."、Um, so if that's the reader's takeaway, I can't stop them from thinking that way because you know fiction cannot. 
um, in, 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 in still in you a message. Um, so if, if that's what the reader wants to take away from it, um, that's within the reader's right. It just, it just means that it's not a reader I particularly care about or I'm interested in. Um, so that's an example of how a story has to be open. It has to be open to interpretation. And a story in, in a lot of ways, the way a reader reads a story tells us more about the reader than about the author. Because, you know, readers will read the story and the, the story they read is a reflection of the sort of lives that they've led and the sort of people they are. Um, and uh, sometimes if the story they read is ugly, um, it's not really the thought of the author, um, uh, but more about who they are. Um, and, you know, the, in, in those cases, there's nothing we can do about it. Um, but I don't write for them. I write for the readers who are willing to go into a house and try to imagine a life um, that may not necessarily be the same shape as the one that they they've taken for granted. Uh, they can move into a new house and, and they see things are different. They, they see that the hallways are shaped differently and the rooms are arranged differently. And they move in there and they say, well, let me, let me try. Let me try to see what it's like to be human in a different way. Um, let me expand my mind and, and, and learn what it's like to be human um, in an entirely different manner. Uh, and that's why we read, right? I mean, think about the books you love. Think about the, the novels that you've enjoyed. In every single case, I bet that you learned about what it's like to be someone else in a way that really, really moved you, that really made you see your own life in a new light and made you admire and, and, and celebrate and, and just in general exclaim with joy at how humanity is so wonderful because we really can be so different and yet mm -hmm. ultimately the same. Yep, yep. I noticed that you're also a storyteller with a huge range. Um, looking at the individual stories in The Paper Menagerie and other stories, uh, the very first story called The Bookmaking Habits of Select Species seems to be the opposite of the paper menagerie. <laughs> um, it kind of reads like a field note um, from a zoologist <laughs> to me. And, um, you know, but nevertheless, it was very intriguing to read. Um, so tell me what was your intention with that piece and why feature it as the opening piece? Yeah, so um, you're right. Uh, I do I do enjoy experimenting. Um, in fact, it's, it's kind of comical. Uh, some readers who come to me um, from the paper menagerie side of things, they, they read that story and they think, that's the sort of story I do. Um, and it turns out that I do a huge variety of different stories and very few of them are actually like the paper <laughs> menagerie. And they sort of, they're, they're, some readers are a little bit shocked. A, a lot of readers actually end up really enjoying it. They sort of say, it's kind of cool to, to, to see that you don't write the same kind of story over and over again. And I never know what to expect when I'm reading one of your stories. Um, so in the case of the bookmaking habits of select species, um, I love experimenting, and that's an example where I was trying to experiment with using the form of nonfiction to tell a fictional story. And I was trying to explore how many aspects of a traditional story can I take away and still leave the reader with a house that they can live an imaginary a, a full imaginary life in. Um, and so I took away characters, right? So as you mentioned, the bookmaking habits of select species, just to describe it for readers uh, briefly, it is a story written in the form of a set of field notes, um, as you 
pointed out. Um, each section describes an imaginary uh, alien species that relates to books or writes artifacts or creates artifacts that share the same general use as our books, but don't look anything like our books. And so it's sort of an exploration of what does it mean to have a book? What does it mean to write a book? What does it mean to read a book? It's all of those things. Um, so in one case, for example, um, the alien species does not make marks on paper and then read it visually. They actually etch these little grooves inside a wax tablet. And the way they read it is they use their uh, proboscis as a record-playing needle, and they place it inside the groove and just sort of scratch along to hear the voice that was written down played back to them. And of course, when you do things this way, you end up destroying or altering the text, if you will, each time you play it, because you're physically altering the thing you're encountering. So I was trying to play with the idea of what does it mean? You know, what if we literally, we, we have metaphorically this description of how readers change texts, how readers change the story, which I was describing to you earlier. But what if that were literally true? What if every reader's encounter with a story literally changed the text in a fundamental way, such that subsequent readers will now have to engage with a meta text of the underlying text and the reading on top of it. That's, you know, in our world, a metaphorical thing, but I wanted to make it literally true. The text actually changed. It gets changed every time you read it. So that's an example, but I wanted to um, experiment and, and, and work through all of my ideas about, about um, writing, about reading, about language, about what it means to think, what it means to read, what it means to write. And um, I chose this form because I wanted to see how many aspects of a traditional narrative can I take away. There are no characters in the story. There are, there's no plot, really. <laughs> the plot is described one species after another. Um, there's no conflict, really. There's no, there's no tension. There's nothing there. I wanted to strip all of that away and leave nothing behind but the structure of imagining things and describing them. And, and usually, right, um, this is a recipe for disaster. It's, it's like hearing someone talk about their dream. The person doing the describing enjoys it, but the person doing the listening, you know, we think this is this is boring as heck. There's no <laughs> This is nothing. Um, but I wanted to see if I can defy that. Can I essentially write a dream in a way that readers actually enjoy reading. That was my, that was my original idea. Um, and uh, I put it down as the very first story in the collection because I wanted to do some gatekeeping, if you will. Um, I, I'm a big believer that life is very short and readers need to allocate their time very, very carefully, right? Um, when I was younger, I had this tendency where if I started reading a book and I wasn't really enjoying it, I would still push myself to finish because there's some sort of idea that you have to finish the thing you started. Um, as you get older, you realize that's a terrible idea and you should never do that. Uh, life is really short. You really need to focus your time on books you enjoy. So I wanted to save readers time. So my thought is this. Is there some way for me to start the collection with the most Ken Lu story possible? Can I put a story here that is me at both my best 
and my worst. There are certain things I'm good at and certain things I'm not good at. I'm going to put a story up front that is me at my best and also me at my very worst. Um, so when readers are browsing the book in the store or they're reading it on Amazon or something, you know, looking at the preview, this is the story they're going to see. So I want them to see it and then they can decide if they're, they're going to go through the rest of it or not, because this is me at my worst. If you don't like this, it's also me at my best. If you don't like this, I guarantee you, you're not going to like any of the rest of the stories. So don't waste your time. But if you do like this, stick around because there's a lot more interesting variety um, stuff that in some ways um, replicate the, the pattern of this one, but not in this exact same way. So you might be enjoying yourself. So I wanted to save reader time and money. I put it up front so that readers will know right away. It's very interesting the way you think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, reading your short stories give me the sense that you're somebody with many vastly different life experiences. Before you became a full-time author, you were a soft engineer for Microsoft and also a corporate lawyer. You studied both computer science and English literature at Harvard, and uh, both your parents work in the sciences. You were born in northwestern China and moved to the U.S. at 11 years old. So my question to you is, how did these different life experiences shape you as a person and as a writer? Yeah, this is such a great question. There's no way we can avoid being shaped by our own experiences. You know, I have this theory about um, how humans actually work, uh, which is this. Um, I think humans are fundamentally not driven by data or reason. Uh, we are fundamentally driven by stories. Um, stories make more sense to us than almost anything else. We may end up justifying our decisions by resort to data, to logic, to all this stuff. Uh, but fundamentally, we're driven simply by whether we think the story is good or not. That's, that's it. And how does this get started? Well, I think it started in our childhoods, right? We um, I'm an epic fantasy writer, so I think a lot about um, uh, life as an epic fantasy. We're born into this world, uh, much like epic fantasy heroes like Adam or Gilgamesh or the Monkey King or um, whoever. We're born into this world with no knowledge. We're blank slates, right? And then into this blank void. Um, come our parents, who are our first angels and demons. The way they love us defines how we think about love. The way they hurt us define, defines how we think about pain. Um, and they these early memories become our personal mythologies. They are the references, the north stars by which we measure everything else. Um, and as we grow older, we other angels and demons coming to our lives, our friends, our mentors, um, our rivals. Um, these school ground memories end up becoming outsized landmarks in our imagination later on, right? So uh, Pixar's um, Inside, you know, Inside Out explored this really wonderfully, those core memories. That's what I'm talking about. The core memories are really your personal mythologies. They become the foundations of your your personality, the way you understand the world, the way you you relate to the world. It's not through abstractions. It's through these very concrete stories that motivate you. And then later on, as you um, 
you know, move into Dante's place in um, the Divine Comedy. You're in the middle of life's dark wood, and you realize that um, you're no longer merely a passive participant. You're no longer just the the hero that angels and demons come to 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 give your stories. You are now a part of someone else's story too. You are now the angel or demon in the stories of those who come after you, and it's a it's a very it's a very startling moment when you realize that now you are the hero in the real sense. You've, you're done with growing. You're, you're now going to do. You're going to make the stories. You're going to tell the stories for others. Um, and this is, this is how it is. Generation after generation, you are built up from stories, from the core up. And then you become the stories of those who come after you. Cultures pass down that way. Um, intergenerational trauma is passed down that way. But also the beauty and the grace and, 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 and the grander story of who we are as, as individuals, as families, as tribes, as nations, as professions. Um, that's also how this gets passed on. We we learn the stories, we pass the stories on. The way I understand what it means to be a lawyer is almost entirely defined by my law school professors who embody for me an example of how to relate to the law, how to think about the law, and by the judge I clerked for who showed me concretely what it means to think about an issue with empathy, what it means to respect the law, what it means to be bound by precedent. Everything I know about what it's like to be a lawyer and how to be a good lawyer, I learned by these stories, these memories I have of how my judge um, and my mentors worked. And hopefully, you know, later on, I got to embody those values for those who came after me as well. That's how it is. So, when I when you ask this question, my, my, my answer is, of course, you know, your own life has to end up becoming this personal mythology by which you measure everything else. Um, the way that I moved between worlds and between cultures and between professions and between spaces necessarily defines how I view everything with both um, an insider's perspective and an outsider's skepticism. Um, I have the insider-outsider perspective on everything because you know what it's like to be part of a story and you also know what it's like to be outside the story. Um, having that experience allows me to tell stories that are always um, uh, have this dual perspective. And I think that allows me to give a unique perspective and allows me to build houses that I otherwise can't build. So your interest in mythologies and um, stories and storytelling, at what age did that uh, come to you? Gosh, um, <laughs> that's another really interesting question. Um, you know, I feel like I've been interested in reading mythologies and, and fantasy stories and stories about origin since the very beginning, as far back as I can remember. I mean, I, I remember as a as a child when I lived with my grandmother in China. Um, I remember reading um, these uh, books um, of Greek mythology, of, of Chinese mythology, uh, and just being so into them. And I remember, you know, one thing I did with my classmates was um, I would just tell these stories to them. You know, it's a very David Copperfield moment. I think a lot of writers... <laughs> had this experience. I mean, you know, David Copperfield has this wonderful episode where he was 
telling stories to his classmates. That was his thing.、Uh, that was how he distinguished himself. And I think a lot of writers have this kind of experience as a child, where because you're so interested in stories, you're so in touch with the idea that our core identities are formed from stories that you become obsessed with stories and you tell them.、Um, you you might tell your playmates the the the. Stories you read or heard or even made up,、uh, but when you tell them, you would change them in some way to 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 suit the moment.、Um, I remember doing that, and I remember my grandmother being very proud of me uh, for um, coming up with the story that I. Rolled up myself and I illustrated with crayons, and <laughs>、um, you know we all have those moments.、Uh, but yeah, I I would say I can't remember exactly when it started. It's, it seems like. My interesting stories、uh, was there from the very beginning.、Mm-hmm. But have you thought about、um, actually becoming an author when you、uh, grow up? At that point, no, no, I, I definitely、um, did not.、Uh, I, I mean, you know, I think.、Um, So I think there's a tendency, right, for writers to retroactively reconstruct their life and sort of make everything make sense and say、yeah. that I've always wanted to be a writer and and this is what I, I I've done every step along the way.、Um, I I try to resist that and and I because life isn't that neat and perfect.、Um, I I can say that in high school I certainly was interested in creative writing in college too,、um, but I don't think I really ever seriously thought I would make a living doing this. I, I maybe I thought I would write stories just for myself, or I would try to to see if I can make I can get one story published or something like that.、Um, but no, I was interested in mathematics. I wanted to be a mathematician、um, in high school, and then later on I wanted to. Uh, be an English professor、um, or a computer programmer.、Um, that's why I ended up doing all those things.、Yeah. I ended up being a lawyer,、um, not because I was thinking of them as day jobs. I, I ended up in these professions because I was really interested in them. I, I, I loved、um, building machines. You know, that's how I ended up in software. I, ended, I loved building virtual machines. I, I loved. Constructing artifacts out of symbols that actually did things,、um, you know. At the time,、um, the idea was, if you know how to code and you know how to use a soldering iron, you can change the world. You know, this is the way that you would transform the universe. You you can just go write some code,、um, and that was very appealing to me as a vision.、Um, that's why I got into it, and then later on, I got into the law because again, you know, it's 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 this idea of. Learning a system of rules and how to get the rules to work for you, so that you can help those that need it,、um, and 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 keep power at bay.、Um, but you know, throughout that process, I never stopped writing.、Uh, but I never thought of myself as 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 a full time author. It wasn't until、uh, just a few years ago when the writing got to the point where I had to make a choice. I had to choose between writing or Or doing something else,、um, and and that's when I chose to write because、uh, it was actually possible to make a living doing it.、Um, but until that moment, I don't think I ever dreamed or thought that's what I wanted to do.、Um, mm. it, it happened almost.、Um, it was a it was a choice presented to me before I even. Thought I had a choice,、um, so that was very interesting. I sort of accidentally stumbled into it, if you will,、um, into this position where I could actually write as an author full time.、Um, so I took it, and I definitely enjoyed it.
So out of all these things that you mentioned about making an impact uh, with either engineering or law or writing, I guess in the end, you did ultimately choose to become an author to change. I did. I sure did. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, My other question is, where did you actually learn to write uh, creatively? So um, I don't have um, a creative writing degree or anything like that. Um, I... I took some creative writing classes in college, to be sure. Um, I went to one workshop uh, in genre. That's pretty much it. Um, I sort of had to figure out how to do all of this on my own. Um, I honestly think that the best way to learn how to do something, a craft, you know, like writing, is to just practice at it. Um, it's like any other kind of craft. The way you learn is by observing, watching masters at work, and then just practicing on your own. Um, I also think that to be a writer worth reading, you have to actually invent your own language. Um, and so a lot of times writing advice to me is wrong because a lot of the writing advice is geared towards teaching you how to write smoothly, how to write in a professional manner, how to write in a way that feels uh, like professional writing. I actually am very opposed to that. It, it can be taken as you need to write like everyone else or you Mm. need to write like the dominant voice of the moment. And I I just think that's a very bad way to interpret uh, the advice. Um, The reason something reads smoothly to you is because it's cliched. That's why it doesn't require to think. It doesn't require to struggle. So the smoother something feels to you, the more effortless something is, the more cliched it actually is. Um, And writers who are worth reading never settle for cliches. They have to invent their own language. They have to invent their own unique way of using the language. So I don't think there is such a thing as English. There is no such thing as Mandarin either. There's no such thing as French, Arabic, whatever. There are only unique versions of each as used by each individual. So Herman Melville did not write in something called 19th century American English. He wrote in his own Melville-ese that ended up being so influential that other people imitated him. Um, uh, Somebody like uh, Emily Dickinson did not write uh, like any other poet of her time. She invented her own unique take on language, her own unique style. Um, A writer worth reading needs to be identifiable in every sentence, in every paragraph, because only by inventing your own language can you give readers a sense of the unique house you can construct, of the unique vision of human life that you envision. Every writer worth reading invents their own way of doing things. Um, and, and so that's what I had to do. You know, much of my writing career was spending trying to experiment with different genres, different techniques, different styles, in the hopes of inventing my own language. And I would say, you know, just to, to bring the, uh, this whole thing full circle, the combination of all my effort is my big epic fantasy series, um, the Dandelion Dynasty. It's, 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 it's the one thing in which I try to put my own new invented language, aesthetically, uh, artistically, linguistically, whatever have you, I try to put that unique language that I invented to tell the stories that only I can tell. This is the combination of all of that. Um, and after a decade of work, you know, Speaking Bones, which is the very last book is coming out, 
Um, and uh, I'm 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 exhausted, but also really proud <laughs> and, and happy because you know it take it took me ten years to do this, and and I really feel like put all of myself into it. Um, it is um, deeply informed by my personal mythology, and at the same time, I also think it's as universal as I could possibly make it um, because it is so particular and so human. All right, let's get to your final book in the Dandelion Dynasty, Speaking Bones, which is coming out in June. Can you give us a sneak peek? Uh, sure. So the Dandelion Dynasty is this gigantic epic fantasy. Um, I call it Silk Punk uh, because um, it has a pretty unique uh, aesthetic. Um, it's the world building is sort of a blend of all the epic fantasy traditions that I'm familiar with. Um, so there's a lot of the Odyssey and the Iliad and the Aeneid and Beowulf in it. But there's also a lot of Romance of the Three Kingdoms and Records of the Grand Historian uh, and all the wuxia novels um, uh, uh, by Jin Yong in there as well. Um, these are all literary traditions that I love, that meant a lot to me. And so I wanted to put them all together um, uh, into one uniquely interesting me kind of uh, storytelling language. Um, and at the same time, uh, because, you know, I spent so many years as an engineer and as a lawyer, these epic fantasies are obsessed with systems of rules with engineering. So in this world, the heroes are not wizards, but engineers. Um, it's about invention. It's about building new machines that do wonderful things. And a lot of the engineering language is very much inspired by East Asian uh, traditions. And that's why it's called Silk Punk, because I'm sure drawing on a technology vocabulary and technology aesthetic that's very much inspired by East Asian traditions. Um, so there's a lot of use of paper, of silk, of um, uh, complex machinery, um, of, of this idea that whatever you build has to, at the same time, exhibit human art, as well as Nat, uh, natural uh, uh, beauty. Um, it's a melding of the human and the natural uh, in a way that is very much emphasized uh, in traditional East Asian uh, building techniques. Um, and at the same time, it's an epic fantasy that is concerned with nation building, with what it means to have a multi-ethnic, multi-cultural um, um single nation. Um, how do you meld all these different traditions of different cultures into one? Um, so, you know, it's no surprise that in some ways it's a retelling of the story of America um, using an East Asian mythological framework. And that's probably the most unique thing about it. I think, um, you know, we've all seen the story of America in epic fantasy terms done from, you know, a Roman or, or Anglo-Saxon mythological background. It's very natural. But I, I don't think I've ever seen one where they retold the story of America using an East Asian mythological background, an East Asian um, political um, uh, uh, philosophy uh, as the underlying theme. Uh, this is an epic fantasy obsessed with national narratives, with cultural stories, with personal stories and collective stories, with 
good stories being more important than good institutions, with constitutions, with what does it mean to build a just and um, proto-democratic system when you have to also account for the fact that you're trying to bring together people with very different cultural and, and linguistic and um, national histories, and they're all trying to become one. What does that look like? And, and how does a society like this deal with its own past injustices? So uh, without making it too abstract, you know, it, it is about all of those things, but also it's about adventure. It's about mm -hmm. <laughs> building cool machines that do awesome things. It's about being silly. <laughs> it's about being a teenager, being love and, and trying to boast and, 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 and drink and tell ridiculous stories and, and trying to skip school and all of that stuff. Um, it's uh, it's 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 got basically, you know, it's like any great epic fantasy. I this is maybe my my way of thinking about it. Um, a great epic fantasy to me is one where whatever happens in life, whether it's politics or 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 you know the news or just some sort of family um, drama, you can think of some episode from that epic fantasy that will be applicable. It's like some people who can always quote you a Simpsons episode for any situation. You know, a good epic fantasy out of allow you to quote something from it that's applicable for every situation. Um, that was my <laughs> goal, and I find myself doing it. I, I find myself thinking about episodes from this giant saga I wrote um, whenever something happens. Um, and I, I feel like that's my measure for having done uh, what I wanted to do. It's comprehensive. It's encyclopedic. It's, um, it's, it's what I wanted to do. Uh, and very few people can say that they wanted to play with the world, a whole world, and, and to invent it and to, to make it real and, and to build it um, and to tell stories in it. Um, and I, I got to do that. I got to actually do all of that and, and tell the story I wanted to tell. Uh, so that's incredibly fortunate. Um, you know, I, I really feel so lucky that I got a yeah. chance to do it. Um, it makes me feel like, you know, I didn't come into this universe and leave empty-handed. I, I left something behind that... Um, I thought is the mm. best I could do. Um, and, and that's pretty darn awesome. So are readers going to be happy with the ending? Um, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I can't spoil it, but I will say, I will say that, um, you know, after 1.7 million words, um, I did end up writing the scene that actually started the whole saga. Um, I, I had in my mind this final scene 10 years ago when I started writing it. Um, it took me 10 years to finally get to the scene and I actually wrote it. But it does feel like a big circle has been completed and it does feel like I've actually fulfilled the covenant I set out to uh, to do. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a pleasure and a joy in that too when you put down the last brick and you step back and you see, you know, I wanted to build this thing and I did it. Um, and it actually is pretty much the way I wanted it to be, uh, even though, you know, there were all these twists and turns in the middle that I could never have foreseen. You know, the characters got away from me. I, I literally had this moment. Um, so I should just say this, but this was originally conceived of um, as a trilogy. It's meant to be three books. I wrote The Grace of Kings, the first book. I wrote The Wall of Storms. And then it took me six years, basically, to write um, the last book. Um, and when I finished the last book, <laughs> it turned out to be this gigantic thing, so gigantic 
that my publisher said there's no way to publish this as a single book um, because it's just too thick. The, the, the binding will not hold. So that's why they chopped it down the middle into two separate books. Um, I wrote it actually as one book. Um, but, you know, the, the reason it happened is because the characters got away from me. You know, you, you create these characters and you create a story and you think you're in control. But I think every author has this experience where the characters get away from you. Um, they decided that they wanted to tell their own story, that they, four characters in particular, um, decided that they weren't going to be minor characters. They wanted to take center stage. They wanted to have their own book. Um, and I was helpless. I had to actually write the book they wanted me to write. Um, and I had to figure out how to fit their book into the book I wanted to write. And that took me, you know, years. Uh, but I'm happy that in the end, the, the book is what it is, uh, because these four characters insisted on being inserted into the story, and they were right. They needed to be in the story. They were critical to what I wanted to do. I just didn't see it at, at first. Um, but eventually they made their way in, and, and they, they, they made a place for themselves. Um, may we all be so lucky. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Ken. Uh, and I look forward to reading the final book of your uh, long, long series. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sissy. That was the author Ken Liu, whose new book, Speaking Bones, the final installment in the Dandelion Dynasty epic, is out now. You can check out his website at kenliu.name. That's K-E-N-L-I-U.name. Also, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google. And head over to cc-1.com, that's S-I-S-S-I-W-A-N-G.com, for more interviews like this one, plus read about the guests you just heard and see pictures from the interviews. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. Until next time.